Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. We know on Tuesday night the former president made a big announcement. His candidacy uh, announced uh, from his Mar-a-Lago home in Florida. He said he needed to run again for the presidency in order to make America great and glorious again. But how much support does the twice-impeached former president actually have among Republicans in Iowa these days? Well, uh, let's look to Brianne Vanensteel at this point, chief politics reporter for the Des Moines Register. Hello again, Brianne. Hello, Ben. So uh, Trump's announcement, we have to remember the context here, coming on the heels of this underwhelming midterm outcome for Republicans, despite, um, according to polls, a deeply unpopular Democratic president, uh, Republicans failed to take control of the U.S. Senate and made some smaller gains uh, than expected in the U.S. House. Of course, in Iowa, uh, we were not quite with the uh, national trend uh, for the midterms. But in your reporting this week, uh, you looked into the question of how well Donald Trump is likely to do in the 2024 Iowa Republican caucuses. What did you find? Well, you have to remember that Iowa is still really friendly territory for the former president. Um, you know, even even as people are kind of looking to the future, you've got a real split. You know, the last time the register polled on this question was in July, and we found that 57 percent of Iowa Republicans said they hoped that Donald Trump would decide to run for president in 2024. So that's that's a majority right there. That's a sizable chunk. But another third, 33 percent, said they hoped he would not. Ten percent aren't sure. So you're seeing this split among Iowa Republicans, at least in July, saying, you know, we're interested in seeing someone new. We're interested in seeing who else might come. And, and that really plays out in our reporting, kind of talking to voters on the ground at various events, hearing who they might be interested in. Certainly there are people who are always Trumpers, but they're, you know, this is Iowa. It's the Iowa caucuses. And I think it still holds true that people who go to caucuses are interested in hearing from the entire field. People are very interested in hearing from Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, if he decides to come. They've put up good crowds for people like Nikki Haley. They've put up good crowds for people like Mike Pompeo. So you're seeing a really steady stream of people coming through saying that, um, you know, they're they're thinking about it. They're kicking the tires here in Iowa and Iowa Republicans are giving them a, a warm reception. Mm -hmm. You referred to those recent Iowa polls that the register uh, put out there, too. I wonder if you can dig down a little bit into the, well, you said 57 percent of Iowa Republicans said they hoped Trump would decide to run for president in 2024. Uh, Can we break that up into, you know, men versus women and ages and so forth? Does that tell us any more? You know, it's it's nice to look at Republicans because that's who's going to be attending a Republican caucus generally. But you can also look at independents. Sixty two percent of independents say they hope he decides not to run. Twenty six percent hope he does. You look at men. uh, Men are more likely to say they hope he decides to run than women. Thirty six percent of men decide say they they hope he decides to run versus 28% of women. So, you know, a little bit more more there. Um, if you look at ages, it's it's there's some small differences, but not a whole lot. Those 35 to 54 are more likely to say they hope he decides to run 36%. 
um, compared with those younger than 35. So you see some splits there, you know, slightly older men, Republicans are, are more likely to say that they they hope the former president runs again. And so again, now he has announced his candidacy. So it's less of a, you know, hope he decides to run or will you vote for him? Right. <laughs> so we've got to see how this plays out once, you know, he starts actually campaigning again. Right. And those polls were prior to the midterms, which would need to be factored in, will be factored in in, in future polls. How much do we know how much uh, Republicans uh, blame Donald Trump for their party's disappointing showing? Well, I think you're starting to see certainly, you know, the prominent Republicans who are who are in the news kind of starting to point the fingers pretty directly at Donald Trump. And, and we talked to some, you know, Republican, um, you know, operatives, leaders here in this state, my, uh, Bob Vander Plaats, who's the, the leader of the, um, the family leader, is, you know, a, a Christian conservative, it has been, you know, fairly outspoken of Donald Trump recently, but but he said, you know, it's just time to turn the page. We've, we've got to look toward winning. He's, he's not a winner. And so I think to the extent that that Republicans can kind of coalesce around this messaging, right, and, and sell it to your average voter, um, you know, Donald Trump's appeal for a lot of people is that he was a winner, right? He could sell that that he was going to win. And that's harder to do once you've lost a presidential election, once you've, you know, put your name behind some some candidates who who did very poorly in the midterms and and maybe, you know, harmed the party's overall performance. Um, that that's harder to say. So we were also at the West Side Conservatives Club meeting this week. Uh, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson was there speaking. He's somebody who is also thinking about running for president. And the crowd seemed very receptive to, you know, comments from him and from former Governor Terry Branstad, who said, we need to look to the future. We need to, you know, stop thinking about the past. We need to see what the future is. And so there are some ways to kind of interpret those comments, but certainly, um, you know, it leaves the door open for, for somebody else to come in and say, Donald Trump was the past and I'm going to take the party forward. Right. And and closely aligned with that is that Donald Trump seems to have the, in that announcement he made this week, seems to have the um, dusted off the same playbook he had in 2016, really the playbook he's had all along, that the country is in his words, grave trouble. And he, he wants to, to channel the outsider um, uh, figure that uh, figured into his 2016 campaign. And I suppose other messaging from other possible candidates is is moving past that or, or different than that. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And we saw, you know, just today, there's a super PAC that formed recently um, encouraging Ron DeSantis to run for president. It was formed by a former Trump supporter, um, a, a, I believe a California operative, and they've started airing digital and TV ads in Iowa at that kind of point. They're, they're focused on, you know, a new leader emerging to take America beyond these problems. You know, I think, I think from Republicans, you you know, given President Biden's low approval ratings, you'll definitely see them continue to kind of say this is, you know, dark times in America, more or less, right? And but you need a new leader to take take them forward into the future. So you're already seeing that in the super PACs messaging. Um, and so we'll see what the rest of these, you know, potential candidates say when they they start coming back to the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, to zoom out a little bit of a bigger question, when we look back, uh, it was only a decade ago, Brianne, that um, uh, Iowa supported Barack Obama in his reelection. Uh, so um, 
in light of the, the, the recent outcome from this midterm election, how is it that Iowa has gone from a very purple state to a solidly red one in just 10 years? It's a good question, and it's one that we're going to be doing some reporting on over over the years. But, you know, I think Donald Trump was a real shift for a lot of people. We, there was a lot of talk, um, you know, in 2016 about all of the, we call them pivot counties, right? The counties that voted twice for Barack Obama and now switched their allegiance to Donald Trump. And, and since then, we've seen those counties grow increasingly more conservative in the way that they vote. Um, and so this year, if, if you look at Iowa's red wave, right? It didn't mirror kind of what we saw entirely across the nation. And part of that, you know, Democrats, of course, will say that the Republicans that that were on the ballot are extreme, but they're not the kind of MAGA candidates who are are deep into election conspiracy, that kind of thing that we've seen in some of these other states. Some of the candidates that Donald Trump did did endorse and prop up in other states. They're much, much more kind of traditional Republicans across the board. And so there was not that backlash that we've seen in other states. You look at someone like Kim Reynolds, who is deeply popular across the state among Republicans and independents, and her win, she won by almost 19 percentage points really pulled up a lot of down-ballot Republicans. You did not see the same strength on the Democratic side, having a very strong top-of-ticket Democrat who was able to pull up those same kinds of voters. So, you know, it it was definitely a red wave by every every standard here in Iowa. And so it'll be up to the Iowa Demo- Democratic Party to some extent to really build the bench and rebuild. And, and you're seeing some efforts to try that. But it's it's in a difficult place right now, and it'll be you know interesting to see how they plan to to come back from that. And certainly, you know, national Democrats are next month probably going to strip Iowa Democrats of their first in the nation caucus status, and that's a huge organizing fundraising apparatus for the party. And so that certainly won't help things here in Iowa. Yeah, and so uh, just to be clear for our listeners, uh, the Republican caucus going on as as it has in past years, it'll be the it's the Democrats one that is um, in jeopardy, big jeopardy, and we'll find out. It'll be more clear in the coming days what actually happens uh, on the Democratic side here in Iowa for that nomination process. Uh, let me before we go, Brianne. Let me ask you about one other development, a news development this week in, in politics. Iowa's two U.S. senators split uh, on um, a, a bill to that advanced to protect Americans' rights to marry. Uh, the vote in the Senate was 62 to 37. This is the Respect for Marriage Act uh, that would codify same-sex and interracial marriage by requiring the federal government to recognize those marriages. And it also requires states to recognize out-of-state marriages, regardless of the sex, the race, ethnicity, national origin of the couple. Now, uh, our Senator Chuck Grassley voted no on the bill's advancement. Uh, uh, U.S. Senator Joni Ernst, our other Republican senator, voted yes. What can you tell us about what's behind the split vote here? Well, they Chuck Grassley issued a statement. Um, he said his vote was not about opposing the recognition of same-sex or interracial marriages. Um, He said it was about religious liberty. He said the legislation is simply unnecessary. That's a quote. Um, And, you know, I think for him, the vote was, was about, 
you know, seeing this as an unnecessary production that doesn't necessarily add anything versus um, potentially damaging religious liberty. Joni Ernst disagreed. Um, She voted to advance the legislation, and she also issued a statement. She said, after hearing directly from Iowans and closely reviewing the amended language, I believe this bill protects religious freedoms and will simply maintain the status quo in Iowa. So her, her vote very different. She was among the Republicans who joined with Democrats to advance this forward, and it will move now to uh, to a future vote. Okay, thank you very much, Brianne Fannin-Steele, Chief Politics Reporter for the Des Moines Register. Always great to get your thoughts and to, to talk about your awesome reporting. Brianne, thanks again. Thanks, Ben. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Dangerous chemicals, they're known as PFAS, or perhaps you've heard forever chemicals. They've been detected in one of Sioux City's drinking water sources, and it turns out several other Iowa communities have the same issue. The contamination levels now warrant a health advisory in Sioux City's case. Let's find out more from Kendall Crawford, IPR Western Iowa reporter. Hi, Kendall. Hi, Ben. Let's make sure we know what PFAS are. Tell us. Yeah. So like you said, they're dangerous chemicals. Uh, They're the per and polyfluoractyl substances. And basically what that means, they're compounds composed of more than 6,000 chemicals. And they're used in products that are resistant to heat. Uh, So those are products that repel oil and water. And The concerning thing about them is that they do not break down in the environment and they stick around forever, which is why they have that nickname of forever chemicals. Um, So there are very few ways to dispose of PFAS. Um, And so that's why when we do detect levels of them, that's why it's so concerning is because they do stick around. Mm -hmm. And I understand, though, the science on their potential health risks a bit murky or not? Yes. Yeah, so so we're still waiting for some really finalized rulings on what exact levels are dangerous for people. But in high amounts, um, it, it's been known to have a wide ranging of adverse effects, including increased risk of some cancers. They can interfere with um, the body's natural hormones um, and they can pose developmental risks for children. But again, it is that level that we're at where we do need more research to find out how much PFAS do cause these problems. Okay, zeroing in on, on Sioux City and other Iowa communities uh, that have elevated levels of PFAS. Tell, tell us more there. Yeah, so this summer, actually, the EPA, because they are doing more research on how much PFAS are needed to kind of cause these effects, they decided to lower their health advisory level from 70 parts per trillion to just 0.004 parts per trillion, which is a really, really big jump. And so when that happened, um, any place in Iowa that had detected PFAS is suddenly above that health advisory Mm. threshold. So Sioux City is one of those places, um, they have around 10 parts per trillion, which again was significantly lower than the past threshold, but now it it exceeds it. Um, And that's the case for around a dozen of Iowa communities where these chemicals have been located. Mm -hmm. You've contacted authorities in Sioux City. What do they say they're doing about it or going to do about it? Yeah, so really the the utilities director at Sioux City is trying to kind of communicate that 
It's not cause for concern. The levels haven't, you know, risen, but they are wanting to be as transparent as possible about the fact that PFAS are detected in one of the water treatment plants that serves less than a fourth of of Sioux City's water. Um, But they are going to wait until they make any decisions about kind of how to combat this problem uh, because they want to hear that final ruling, which is scheduled to come out in June of 2023. And so... You know, the plan there, they said, is they would likely consider relocating the well to a different water source. um, And that's estimated to cost around $4.5 billion. They could invest in trying some of this new technologies to remove the chemicals from the source, but that would be significantly more money. And so Mayor Bob Scott has said that, you know, if the EPA guidance comes out and they're still at this 0.004 parts per trillion number, then they'll have to think about where they can move the water source. Mm-hmm. In Sioux City's case, do, do they know where the can- contamination came from? Yes, we we do. It was uh, around three years ago where it was found that the Iowa Air National Guard base um, had substantial, significant levels, more than 8,000 parts per trillion of PFAS. And so that was thought to have come from those firefighting foams that they were using at that base. It's thought that those chemicals have migrated off the base and found their way into one of the water treatment plants. Okay, we'll be um, listening for the EPA's uh, final ruling of the PFAS level, those standards, next summer. I think you said Kendall Crawford. Thank you so much, IPR Western Iowa reporter. Thanks, Kendall. Thanks. Your Friday News Buzz continues here from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Let's check in with Lynn Taw of Axios in Des Moines about a couple of stories she's covered this week. Hello again, Lynn. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. I'm interested in a couple of articles you wrote this uh, week. Uh, In one, uh, you note that uh, new research in uh, the JAMA network uh, points to sexually transmitted diseases and infections rising in four counties in Iowa after our 2017 Iowa law that forced abortion clinics to to close in those counties. Tell us more. Yeah. So this report had just come out um, last month, and it was actually led by Megan Srinivas, who's a new Iowa lawmaker now. But basically, the report was taking an examination of the counties where four medical facilities that performed abortions Um, were forced to close by Planned Parenthood of the Heartland following a 2017 law that had passed in the state. So so basically back in in 2017, the legislature had passed a new law that defunded clinics that performed abortions. And so Planned Parenthood said, you know, we won't be able to sustain these places. And so the report really takes a look at, you know, what were the STD and STI infection rates prior to these closures and what do they look like after the closures. And what they found was that in these locations, Bettendorf, Burlington, Keokuk, and Sioux City, was that while there has been a statewide increase in general in, in STIs and, in, and specifically chlamydia um, and uh, gonorrhea and syphilis, what they really found was in these four places they rose at an astronomical and disparate level in comparison to the rest of the state. So they don't 100% conclude that the reasoning is because of those clinics closing, but they're saying that not having access to those 
to those medical facilities also led to, you know, reduced testing and reduced educational resources in those areas. Yeah, and as you make clear in your reporting, this is no small number of Iowans that previously turned to these clinics for for all kinds of uh, all kinds of medical services, right? Yeah, I think you know around that time, Planned Parenthood said that they saw almost fifteen thousand patients at those four clinics, so they definitely served a, a high number of of Iowans. Another article that you wrote this week um, talked about how Iowa is missing out again, on uh, millions, tens of millions of dollars, in fact, in federal funding for child care services. Tell us the story behind this issue. Yeah. So in September, the federal government made some funds available again to certain states that allowed them to apply and, uh, and get this grant money that's meant for preschool and early childhood services. So you know, whether it's funding, you know, pre-K or helping existing facilities, it, it was really meant for kids who are getting ready to, to learn and then prepare to go into school. So it was recently announced that um, Governor Kim Reynolds' office and the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services ha- had actually declined to even apply for this grant money. So the Early Childhood Iowa it's a program within the state. They had been spending two months writing this grant to try to get $30 million to, to help, you know, fund these child care services. But the state and the, the governor's office had said that they didn't want to commit um, a matching $3 million in state funds to be able to get that grant. And instead, they use some different funds, some different state funding that they have to, to try and help with pre-K programming. Committing three million dollars to get thirty million in federal funding seems like seems like a good deal. Um, but as you point out in your reporting, this is you know what does the governor say about why this was declined? Yeah, you know the governor herself hasn't really commented specifically on this, but I think you know what some advocates are saying. If you're reading a little bit between the lines, is this isn't the first time the governor has declined funding that's come from the Biden administration. You know, some of the the most recent ones have included rental assistance, millions in rental assistance that um, was meant to to help Iowans who may be struggling getting an apartment. You know, last year, it was big news when she returned $95 million in federal aid that was meant to help schools boost their pandemic mitigation efforts. And so, you know, some advocates say maybe the governor just doesn't want to take these federal funds from the the Biden administration. Okay. Lynn Tal, reporter with Axios in Des Moines. Thank you so much for the always fine reporting, Lynn. Talk to you again soon, I'm sure. Thanks, Ben. Coming up after a short break, how Polk County is springing into action to help those who struggle with warm housing. Also, another edition of What Dennis Found in the Basement. That's our series here on NewsBuzz celebrating radio's 100th anniversary here in Iowa. And we groove into the weekend with IPR's Mark Simmet. Stay tuned. I'm Ben Kiefer. More of our NewsBuzz edition of River to River from IPR News coming up in just a moment. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at Des Moines Metro Opera.org. 
I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. Coming up in just a moment, we'll reach back into our radio archives to celebrate Iowa space scientist James Van Allen with another edition of What Dennis Found in the Basement with Dennis Reese and Tim Walsh. But first, a warm basement may be your favorite spot now that we've plunged into winter-like weather. Brings to mind those in our state who may not have a warm place to inhabit. Let's talk with Deanne Sesker. Uh, She's Polk County Emergency Management Agency Program Assistant. Deanne, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So how does Polk County tackle housing insecurity, uh, especially when temperatures drop? Well, we have a lot of great partners within our uh, metro area and throughout the county. Um, We uh, work in advance of these cold, miserable days or even extremely hot days as well. But we come together and figure out what can we do the best for our people that do have some housing insecurities. Um, So we come up with locations. We talk about when we would want to open these locations and how do we best get folks to those locations? Because if you don't typically have a place to live, you probably don't have a way to get to these warming centers. So we work with DART. We work with our um, communities throughout the county and um, and make sure that people have a place to go if they need to go somewhere. So, Deanne, give us the criteria in which you kind of launch these emergency services for people needing warm spaces. So, in advance of these bad days, we we get together with our stakeholders and our partners, and we talk about what are those triggers to activate this plan. And in this situation, we have um, our plans identify that a temperature of minus 10 or wind chill of minus 10 we will open these shelters uh, 48 hours in advance so people are familiar of where to go and, and uh, what hours they are actually open. We also work with Des Moines Area Rapid Transit Transportation, um, DART, to um, also provide rides for those folks that need to um, have that additional support to get to these warming centers. Uh, Deanne, uh, in your position there in Polk County at the EMA, uh, Tell us, have you noticed the trends among those with who struggle with with housing in recent years, uh, be it need for warm housing or, or cooling off in the summer? Yeah, I think that we have seen an uptick in um, the need for um, housing, and particularly when the weather is is very very poor. Um, I think that COVID had a lot to do with that, and a lot of people struggled in addition to what normally occurs um, in our everyday lives of you know, housing insecurity. So. I would assume that those numbers are much higher than usual. Give us a sense, uh, Deanne, of how many shelters there are, how many services in place, uh, communities and and volunteers to run these in Polk County. Well, we have our normal um, homeless shelters that serve their their typical clients, um, but um, our website has a list of those warming centers across the county and um, I think we, depending on the, the day and the time of the day, um, there's probably about 50, 25 to 30 locations across the county that do open the doors that allow people to get warm. Uh, 
And finally, for those perhaps living outside of Polk County who seek information on this, uh, seek uh, for themselves or a loved one who may need assistance, how do people find out more about the the resources uh, statewide or in their particular county? Sure. Um, I would recommend that they contact their county emergency management agency, um, or they could also contact their city hall. Um, Each community is a little different. Each community has different resources and capabilities. So I think those two locations, the county emergency manager or your city hall, would be the great place to start. Okay. Deanne Sasker, Polk County EMA Program Assistant. Uh, Thank you, Deanne. Thank you very much. It's a News Buzz edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, if you've been listening to this program for the last few months, you know we've been celebrating the 100th birthday, birthdays, I should say, of two stations in the Iowa Public Radio Network, WOI and WSUI. Their histories stretch back over a century. So it's time for another in our series, What Dennis Found in the Basement. Joining us as always uh, for this episode of this series, uh, Dennis Reese, a retired IPR midday host, longtime collector of radio artifacts, very interested in radio history in Iowa and the Midwest. Hello, Dennis. Hi, Ben. And Tim Walsh is with yeah. us as well in the studio, uh, historian, director emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum. Tim, welcome to you. Good. Good to be with you guys. I'm always eager to find out what is, actually, I work in this building, and to think this is a few feet underneath, <laughs> uh, th- this is where, to those who haven't heard this series, yeah. this is where a lot of radio memorabilia and history is stored, and you're sorting this out. You two are making sense of it and bringing it up piece by piece in this series to spin out these stories and, and what the, the, the part that radio used to play in our lives. Dennis, what did you find in the basement this time? Well, I want to say WSUI Program Director Larry Walkoff was a busy guy back in the 50s and 60s, and I found another tape of his that turned up downstairs, this time an interview with the great University of Iowa space physicist James Van Allen, a Mount Pleasant, Iowa native with the most distinguished career. Of course, the Earth's atmospheric radiation belts were named after him. He made those Historic discoveries uh, using instruments aboard the 1958 satellites Explorer 1, Explorer 3, and Pioneer 3. And, of course, it was Van Allen who led the effort to put those research instruments on board those three satellites. He was Time Magazine's Man of the Year for that accomplishment back in 1958. Right, and the University of Iowa is well known for James Van Allen. I've talked to numerous astrophysicists who were inspired by James Van Allen to come study at the University of Iowa. Tim, what else can you tell us about James Van Allen? Well, he's an amazing uh, uh, faculty member and researcher who had a real good sense that uh, scientists need to educate the public on why uh, research was important, why space was important, uh, and really his career started here here in Iowa. He was born in Mount Pleasant, educated primarily in Iowa, PhD from the University of Iowa. But then, as Dennis mentioned, he was head of the International Geophysical Year, and that's what brought a lot of international attention to the, the various space satellites that he was uh, uh, sponsoring and, and, and sending uh, up into, uh, into orbit. So, so what, uh, what Larry Walkoff was doing was really interviewing him and using the opportunity to W.S. 
USUI to educate the public. So that's what we're going to hear now is a clip from a, uh, I think it's October of 1958, where Larry asks him, why should we care about uh, space research? Well, now I'd like to turn from any consideration of the military to another aspect of Mr. Finney's article, uh, which I think puts you right squarely in the middle of the thing. Uh, he says, now that the first hysteria over space has worn away, second thoughts are arising among scientists that an aggressive program of space exploration could divert men and money from other fields of necessary research. This concern is prevalent in the Science Advisory Committee, whose members are drawn primarily from universities, and uh, that would be you, of course, among them, where the primary interest is in basic research rather than technological development of bigger and better space vehicles. Now, it seems to me that you might uh, easily be lined up on both sides of that question, or do you see it as a question at all? How, what is your reaction to those uh, paragraphs from Mr. Finney, Finney's article? Well, as I think I said earlier, I'm much less enthusiastic about manned space travel and purely uh, the pure development of vehicles than, than many others of my friends are. My main interest and our main interest here in the university is in using uh, space vehicles for pure scientific investigations. That's what we're doing here, and that's what we're interested in. And uh, so in that, I, I agree it is an expensive form of research. Uh, in that respect, it resembles high-energy nuclear research with very large cyclotrons, very large accelerating machines. However, there is no known human method for attacking the sorts of problems we're interested in than by a rocket-type uh, vehicle. This has often been referred to, uh, um, I shudder at the phrase, but as a laboratory in the sky. So yes. Mm. Well, now, uh, there is one further uh, development of that theme. Uh, some have said, uh, well, why do we neglect earthly problems, such as cancer research, for something as esoteric-seeming uh, as uh, outer space? And what, uh, what would your answer be to this sort of criticism? Well, I'm heartily in favor of any progress on preventing and curing cancer, of course. Uh, I think one should remark that uh, the, uh, the consumption of human beings is virtually unlimited. Now, we can have a, a television set in every room. Each member of a family can have an automobile. There is a question to what extent you, one should allow uh, just rampant uh, civilian consumption or personal consumption to be a major national objective. Now, I think for myself that uh, education, intellectual leadership should be a much more, uh, is a much more vital uh, matter. Uh, these two things are much more vital matters of national concern than improving the, uh, the uh, increasing individual consumption of goods. So uh, there's certainly there's no limit to the uh, number of uh, things that um, a person can use, consume, uh, throw away, make use of in his daily life. But I think we must uh, adjust our sense of values in the general national interest. Now, I remember a figure that there's about three billion, that is three billion dollars spent each year for the purchase of cigarettes alone by persons in the United States. Now this is, seems like quite a large number, and I feel that it is. A vigorous space effort in the United States can be supported for perhaps one-fifth to one-sixth of this amount, and I believe that it will have a, this I believe puts it in the proper perspective as what is required to, uh, to uh, develop international leadership in this field 
is, so to speak, a minor part of what most of us throw away in a day in, in the form of tobacco. I take it you feel that we can do uh, certainly a maximum or a substantial effort in this area we're speaking of without doing harm to other kinds of research and other kinds of um, uh, material gains. We yes, yes, I do. So that was uh, some tape from the legendary James Van Allen, June 4th, 1958, an interview with then WSUI program director Larry Walkoff. Fascinating tape here. We have another clip that we wanted to play here, Dennis, of this th- yeah. this interview that you found in the basement, and 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 and, and this really uh, this next clip really tells us the year that we're talking about, doesn't right. it? Right, 1958. And this this clip is very short. It's, it's about the space race, and he comments about are we right now and how involved are we in a space race with the Russians? Is it a good use of our money to compete with them? And where is this going to go? So this was a second segment. Now, right after the launching of Sputnik 1, we held a panel on this very program, a panel discussion, in which I think the temperament of those who were participating was that uh, the Russians had gotten a very substantial jump on us scientifically, one which they appeared able to maintain for a good long while. Uh, Your statement, to which I referred earlier from the satellite and rocket uh, panel, implied that we could uh, restore our scientific position if indeed it had been lost. What is your evaluation of our relative positions now, scientifically, and taking into consideration the extraordinary weight of Sputnik 3, for example? Well, I think uh, Lee DuBridge put this very well in a lecture recently that if one compares the uh, scientific advancements in Russia with those in America, he should be thinking of uh, not the race between two speedboats, and then one could always tell, say, which one of the two is ahead, but he should be thinking of a race between two flotillas of speedboats in which, we, say, ours are all blue and theirs are all red, and and there's some red boats are ahead of some blue boats, and on the whole, it's a little difficult to tell which uh, flotilla is leading. And I think that puts the matter very well in science, that it's a very diverse uh, field in some branches of chemistry. It's quite evident that we're ahead here in America and other branches of of chemistry that they are ahead. And uh, uh, say oceanography, it's quite likely they are ahead of us. In nuclear physics, we are perhaps ahead of them, although it's sort of neck and neck in that case. And so it's a very uh, matter of very great uh, difficulty to make any simple statement. In fact, any simple statement is almost certainly uh, wrong if and unless it is suitably qualified in this sense. Now, there's no doubt that they are a great deal ahead of us in putting large objects in orbit around the Earth. There's no doubt about that. James Van Allen from June of 1958 to end this conversation. Dennis, I know you have a personal observation because you had quite a bit of contact with uh, James Van Allen before his death. But before that, to zero in on the space race, Tim, a quick comment uh, for those who may not realize what 1958 means and the, the advent of the space race. We were really put on a hot seat. That's right. The Cold War was, was kind of, I don't want to say raging, but it was, it was ramping up. There was a lot of, of tension within the country over whether there were Russian spies here, whether their scientific achievements were greater than ours. Uh, the Russians had launched this Sputnik program, and uh, we were working very hard, uh, and we were frustrated at our ability to get uh, objects into space, several terrible accidents on, on the, uh, uh, the launch pad. And 
And so um, we were working hard. People, of course, will remember uh, the right stuff, the movie, and, mm-hmm. and all of the discussion about Alan Shepard and so forth. And so Van Allen was in the thick of it, this whole idea of getting big rockets, and that was so important. And as you referenced earlier, his genius was making us aware of the importance right. of investing exactly. in scientific research. Exactly. People will remember uh, Werner von Braun, who worked with Walt Disney and educating people about space rockets. Van Allen did much the same with the general public, and WSUI was a part of it uh, by telling the people of Iowa why the space race was so important and why our investment in space was important. In the final minute or so, Dennis Reese, let's hear your personal observations of your contact, your relationship with the the great James Van Allen. Well, I just want to say, you know, over the years when I was program director at WSUI and leader uh, host of uh, IPR, many, many times uh, Professor Van Allen came to the station here on South Clinton Street to be interviewed by NPR and the BBC and many other networks. I would walk him to the studio from his rusty old Jeep Wrangler. (laughs) Now, my last time with him was not long before he passed in 2006. He dropped by, and I noticed that he had a new Wrangler. Now, I mentioned this to him, and he, he said that he had traded up from his late 80s model to a then 15-year-old mid-90s model, and he said at least it isn't rusty. He was very frugal. Very, <laughs> he was a great guy, super nice guy, though. Okay, what Dennis found in the basement, uh, this uh, edition, an interview with uh, James Van Allen. Dennis Reese, retired IPR midday host, uh, Tim Walsh, historian. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Good to be with you. And that just about does it for this News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News on this November 18th. Mark Simmett of IPR Studio One joins me now to, of course, groove us into the weekend. Hi, Mark. Hello, Ben. What do you got for us? Well, we have some new music for you, a couple new releases that we've been playing here on Studio One recently. Uh, The first one is from Wise Blood. Uh, This is the band name that Natalie Mehring uses. And the thing about Natalie Mehring, of course, fine songwriter and musician, but she has just a a wonderful voice, uh, reminiscent at times of Joni Mitchell. Sometimes I think Karen Carpenter is what I'm hearing, but of course it's all her own. Uh, Natalie Mehring and her band Wise Blood. Brand new album, it's called In the Darkness and In the Darkness, Hearts Aglow. And, you know, the album's probably about a lot of things, but it seems to me it's about uh, the changes that have occurred since uh, the past two and a half years of COVID, the way that people interact with each other and so on. I get that from the lyrics. Here's a track called It's Not Just Me, It's Everybody. Oh, yes, everybody splits apart Sometimes
Mark, you are so right about the voice of Natalie Maring, wise blood. It's not just me, it's everybody. Uh, Karen Carpenter, I definitely heard there, Mark. Very good. We have time for one more. Well, my next selection is one of those bands with a name that can be rather misleading. I think one of the most misleading band names out there right now. They're called Drug Dealer. Uh, but the sound of the band may be not quite what you expect. Uh, Michael Collins is the guy behind this band, and he's got this uh, retro pop rock sound going with uh, Drug Dealer. kind of reminds you of 1970s soft rock AM radio type uh, hits, you know, people like early uh, Hall & Oates or maybe even Boz Skaggs and a lot of other people as well. And I thought this is just a, a great example of that. Uh, it's Drug Dealer with a song called Madison. She's never gonna let you go Mark, what is the old adage? Don't uh, judge a book by its cover. Don't <laughs> judge a band <laughs> by its name. I love uh, the sound of Drug Dealer there with Madison. We'll go out uh, with more of uh, this music. Mark, thanks so much. Remind us how uh, we can tune in to IPR Studio One. Well, tune in any given night at 7 o'clock. You'll hear some great music on Studio One tracks. And then Saturday afternoon at 1, we have our show, All Access. Okay, Mark. Thanks, and until next time, take care. Thank you, Ben. River to River Today, produced by Sam McIntosh and Caitlin Troutman, with help from Danny Gear. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Take care. Have a wonderful weekend. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.